I will never forget in September of 2021, we were sitting at my mother-in-law's kitchen table. We had previously been asked to come to her house. There was a family meeting to be had and that it was important. You know, and I had only been in the family for about a month. We had just gotten married a month prior. And so uh, I was a little nervous. I was like, what, what is the family meeting about? And I think we all get a little nervous about family meetings like that where you get the pit in your stomach of like, what, what is wrong? Like, what is happening? I just received this vague invitation that doesn't really have any details and they're not going to tell me what's going on until I show up. And so you start to spiral into all of the things of like, is there something wrong? Is there bad news? Did someone die? Is someone dying? As we would find out later that evening at that kitchen table, the doctors had found a mass in my mother-in-law's brain. And that mass was inhibiting her ability to move her left side well and was giving her seizures. And they said that it wasn't cancer, but they just wanted to remove this mass. They just wanted to get it out. That's what they said. One month and one brain surgery later, they find out that it is, in fact, cancer. And not only that, but it is the worst, most aggressive brain cancer that there is. And suddenly, our worlds, as newlyweds, <laughs> are completely turned upside down for me and my wife. Eighteen months go by, and we're all sitting together as one big family once again, this time not at the kitchen table, but in the front room at my mother-in-law's house, at the foot of her bed as the hospice nurse pronounced her dead a little after 10 a.m. on April 21st of 2023. Those 18 months, and the first 18 months of my marriage, <laughs> were brutal. Brutal, and they were easily some of the worst months of our lives. And the months that would come after her death weren't so great either, as I'm sure many of us are familiar with grief in some capacity. It is terrible. It is heavy. It is, it is a huge burden, a huge weight. And I'm sure many of us even are familiar with being caregivers in some capacity. Whether it's something we've experienced in the past or something we're going through right now, I'm sure a lot of us understand that the weight that that brings and the burden that we carry when we do that and when we go through that. The reason I tell this story is because our story today, our text today, is about that grief. <laughs> It starts there. It's kind of the impetus behind everything in this story. And so let's just, before we get into it, let's just pause and let's just pray. Let's just close our eyes. Let's just take a breath. Holy Spirit, would you just be near to the brokenhearted today? To those that come in carrying burdens that cannot be fathomed, burdens that are too much to bear. Would you lift them up? Would you lighten the load today? Father, we acknowledge that life can be difficult and that life, even though it has its mountains, it has its valleys. And so, Lord, we just come before you in the midst of a mixed bag of experiences that we are having in this room, um, and we just say, Lord, work in us. Lord, work in us today. Speak to our hearts this morning. Open our ears and open our minds, open our eyes to what you have to say to us through the story of Ruth. And would we be changed for the better because of it? In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give one to you. 
please don't leave without taking one. Uh, you can get those at the welcome desk in the lobby. They are just for you. Uh, the verses will also be on the screens beside me so that you can follow along. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. Are we ready? Yep. All right. Thanks, Brittany. <laughs> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. Great name. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Less fortunate names. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them over in Israel, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would, like, that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband." Quick note here, it's important to remember the culture that this is taking place in, okay? This is a patriarchal society. We do not live in one of those so much today. It's very, very different. A woman without a man was one of the most vulnerable people in this society, especially a widow, who her husband dies and now she is left with nothing. She has really nothing to her name. And so it was important for them to have men in their life to take care of them. So we must remember that because it will inform the way that this story plays out, okay? Because it's a lot more than just, oh, their family is, is past and that's really sad and that's how this goes in the story. There's a lot more to it than that because this is a patriarchal society. So let's just keep going. Let's keep that in the back of our minds. Then she kissed them goodbye and wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Gosh, no. Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. She's in this for the long haul. When Naomi realized that Ruth was very determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Let's break this down, what's going on so far. 
okay? We have this Israelite woman named Naomi, right? And she and her family are living in Israel, and a famine occurs, okay? Famines were not wildly uncommon in Israel. They lived in a desert, so if they didn't get rain, if there was a dry season, if there was a drought, the crops, you know, suffered. Ergo, famine, okay? So this wasn't a wildly uncommon thing to happen. But what's weird is why they go to Moab, Okay, geographically speaking, Moab wasn't necessarily like getting all the rain in comparison to Israel. Like it wasn't that much better for them. So it was a little confusing as to why they would go there. Some reasons might be they knew some people that would take them in, perhaps. Another reason would be that they, maybe they thought the Moabite gods would take care of them more than Israel's God. And so they're like, hey, maybe we'll be better provided for over in Moab. There's no food here. Let's just go over there and see what's, see what's the haps over there. Either way, whatever the reason is, they chose to go to Moab. And Naomi's husband dies, and her sons get married to Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and then her sons die. And so now it's just Naomi and her two Moabite daughters-in-law. And then they find out, funny how it turns out this way, they find out through the, through the talk and the rumors in town that Israel is being provided for by their God. Oh, let's go back to Israel. And so they go back. Naomi's like, okay, I'm going to go back, but you guys should stay here in Moab. Okay, and let's note why that is. It's not because she wants to get rid of them. It's not the case. She's not like, you know, I'm, I'm done with you guys. I'm out of here. No, in reality, like I said, this is a patriarchal society, and so women needed men to protect them and to take care of them in all of the different ways in society. And so what, what was happening here is that these were two Moabite women. And in the, the Israelite law, Moabites were not permitted to enter the assembly of God. Okay, and this was because Moabites had their own baggage, their own history, their own stuff that was going on. It's not because God was just like, man, I don't like the Moabites. They're not invited. Like, it was a lot more to the story than that that we're not going to get into today. But either way, these Moabites were not, and were not allowed to enter the assembly of God. And so what's going to happen if a woman comes in and says, I can't enter the assembly of God? Are any of the guys going to go with her? No. All of these Israelite men are going to see her and be like, I can't take you into the assembly. You're a Moabite. It's not going to be very good for me and my estate to bring you into my family. And so, no, I will not marry you. So Naomi's saying to her daughters-in-law, hey, if you want to have a good life, if you want to be cared for, if you want to have a family, if you want to have a husband, you have to stay here in Moab. No one's going to marry you in Israel. It's better for you to stay in Moab. And so Orpah, you know, she's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, deuces, I'm out. Like, she's gone. She, no convincing needed there. She is just off. And so Ruth then, she says, no, I'm not going anywhere. I will, I'm going to take care of you. I will go where you go and stay where you stay and die where you die. She's like, all in. I'll deal with whatever I need to in order to take care of you. And so Naomi's like, okay, fine, I get it. So they go to Bethlehem. And Naomi wants to change her name for some reason. She desires to be called Mara, meaning bitter or rebellious. She's like, my life is just not, not good. She thinks that God has forsaken her or he's punishing her for leaving Israel in the first place. And her life has just fallen apart. And she feels like this identifies her now. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. This misery, this bitterness, because I'm showing up to Bethlehem in far worse conditions than when I left. And so that's where we are. Let's continue. Ruth 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. A Ruth, then Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. 
Quick side note, something you'll find in Hebrew Israelite law from Yahweh is a high value on taking care of the poor, a high value on taking care of those in need. You will find this all throughout your Old Testament in your Bible, through the law and the prophets, through everything. Time and time again, God through prophets and through leaders is telling Israel, take care of those in need. And like I said, in this society, this patriarchal society, widows were one of those people in need. Specifically, there were three groups that were the most needy in this society, and that was the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. Those three groups were the most vulnerable, and often, honestly, if we think about it, like those are still some of the most vulnerable, vulnerable groups in our society today. These are, without a doubt, people that are in need. And so one of the ways that they did this in their law was they had their fields, they had their farmland, this is an agricultural society, and at their fields, they would not pick or harvest the corners of their fields. They would leave them. They'd leave the corners for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow, for the travelers, for them to have their own food. They'd say, we're not going to take the corners. And not only that, but if we drop something as we're walking along, as we're harvesting, if I drop some grain behind me, I can't pick it up. I will not pick it up. Some, I have to leave it for the poor. I have to leave it for somebody else to take because that is their means for food. And so that was kind of their way of making sure that those people in need were, were helped out, that they were taken care of, okay? And so that's what Ruth is picking up on. Ruth enters into this society. She's from Moab. She's not all too familiar with this whole thing. She shows up and she's like, wait, they do this? They take care of the poor? All right, can I go do that? Like, I want to get on board with that. Like, I'm going to go out there, and I am going to get some food. Let's keep reading. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. But then Boaz, just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Such a good, such a good greeting. We should greet each other like that. Boaz the, oh, asked the overseer of his, of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? He sees her, he's like, oh, she's, she's kind of cute. Like, who, who's she with? Has she seen anybody? You know, like, that's his way of asking if she's, like, with anyone, of, like, who does she belong to? Like, what's going on? What's the story? I haven't seen her around these parts. Like, ooh, 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 who's at my field? And the overseer replied, she's the Moabite. Notice her reputation has gone before her. Everybody knows about, it's not a Moabite. She's the Moabite. She's that Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi that you've probably heard about. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And so she came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz was like, Let's do this. I'm going in. So he goes to her and he says, Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Don't, don't get food anywhere else. You stay here. Stay on my field. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. They won't harm you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. He's like, stick around. Get some food. Get all the food you want. I'll make sure you go home taken care of. Don't go anywhere else looking for food. You know what? You want a break? You're thirsty? They've got water over there. Like, let me give you the lay of the land. You're going to be set up here. Like, let Boaz take care of you, Ruth. Like, you, I got you. And so Ruth hears this. She bows down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? 
Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Come join us for lunch. This guy's nailing it. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Hey, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. That's about 10 days worth of food, if you were curious. Boaz is the man. Boaz is killing it over here. Not only is he like, take your time, do your thing. You want a break? Go ahead and have it. Like, we'll take care of you over here at Boaz's place. Like, we've got you covered. But then he's like, hey, come have lunch with us. And he gives her all this food, so much so that she's like, I'm full. And he's like, well, take some more anyways, you know? And he's like, Let's, let me show, show you the life that you could have, you know, with Boaz. And so he gives her all of these things. And then she goes to get up and he's like, hey, workers, purposely drop stuff for Ruth. Like I had just said, we had just said that when you drop something, they couldn't pick it up, right? That was meant to be left for, for people in need. And Boaz is literally like, hey, go purposely drop things. I wonder if these guys were like, dude, really? Like, you're going to make me, like, I'm working all day, and you're going to make me drop it? Like, this is my food, too. This is my wages. But Boaz is like, no, we need to make sure that Ruth is taken care of. I will make sure that she goes home with more than enough. Unbelievable kindness for her. Let's keep reading. This is, this is so great. Ruth carries it back to town. And her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. She's like, whoa. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. She's like, yeah, this is what I gleaned. Oh, and then this is from lunch. And Naomi's like, what? Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Like, where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Oh my goodness. And Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of this man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. And then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. How nice is that? And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. At this time, not everybody is you know, the best of people especially to a foreigner. And so you may not be safe in other fields, so stick over there where they're nice to you. And so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Before we continue with the story, I want to explain what Naomi just said. You might have heard that phrase, guardian redeemer, and been like, what the heck is a guardian redeemer? As I mentioned, in this patriarchal society, women left without a man were extremely vulnerable and in need. And so in Hebrew law, another way to protect them was to put responsibility on male relatives to take in the widows of their family. Okay, what I mean by this is that Ruth can go to Boaz and say, hey, you're a relative of my husband, and so you are therefore obligated to take me in and take care of me. Please redeem me. Make me your wife and take me in. 
and he would be obligated to do so. It wasn't necessarily like a legal law where it was like, you know, do this or you're going to get stoned to death. It was more of like a moral obligation, a religious obligation to do this thing. It was the right thing to do. And so Boaz is this guardian redeemer in their family. He has the capacity to take care of Ruth. And so let's see how that plays out. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you. You need a husband where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, he's a relative of ours. And tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth. Ruth answered. She's like, okay, cool. This isn't my culture. I'll just do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor, did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the the far end of the grain pile and Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. This is very strange. Okay, so let's just, let's just address what's going on here. Like I have, we can't, we can't just brush past that and move on. Why is she uncovering this man's feet? There are weird things going on. Okay, so let's, let's start with the fact that Boaz is going down to the threshing floor. Boaz, as the, as the owner of this field, has a responsibility to keep his grain safe. And so this wasn't uncommon for owners to go down to the threshing floor where the, the stuff was being harvested, and they would go down there and sleep there through the night to protect it, to make sure that nobody came in and took it all. Obviously, he's not doing a good job. He was asleep. Um, but either way, he's down there. That's what he's doing. That's what he's up to. And Naomi, knowing this, was like, Ruth, go down there. He will be down there. So make note of where he is and go uncover his feet. There's a debate on what this means to uncover his feet. It could be a literal thing, but a lot of scholars would suggest that it would be employing a Hebrew euphemism that is very common throughout scripture, that to uncover his feet is actually to uncover his circumcision. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. So, so she's going in there and she is just like opening it up and then she's going to lie down. Okay, now, this is not a sexual thing. I want to be very clear about that. This wasn't like a a sexual thing in this scenario. The euphemism could be used in that way, but looking at this story with Ruth, with who Ruth is and who Boaz is, and with like what goes down in this story, it's very clear that's not what's going on here. All she does is she uncovers his circumcision. And if you aren't familiar with the Old Testament, his circumcision is a sign of his covenant with God. That's what this was. That was the whole purpose of this thing. And so if you see a circumcision, you would know that's the covenant with God. That is something that is distinct and that is something that is symbolic. So what is Ruth doing? Why is Ruth doing this? You have to realize that now when Ruth wakes Boaz up, when Boaz wakes up and he's like, he gets startled, you know, it's a little drafty in there. So he's down there, he wakes up, he's like, whoa, what's going on? What, what is happening? He sees two things. What does he see? He sees his circumcision and he sees Ruth. Or to, to put it even in more detail, he sees his covenant with God to take care of the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. And who does he see next to him? A foreigner, orphan, and widow. Ruth is all three. 
She is a foreigner from Moab. She is an orphan whose parents are no longer alive. Her her father-in-law is dead, and she's also a widow. Her husband is dead. She is all three. She is the most in need that you could be in this society. And so he wakes up, and he sees his covenant with God, this reminder to take care of these people, and he says, oh my goodness. So he wakes up. Something startles him. And he says, who are you? He asked, what is going on? I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. She says, Ruth, I'm Ruth, a foreigner, an orphan, a widow. Spread the corner of your garment over me, which was an act of betrothal, not sexual. It was an act of betrothal. And so spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of my family. She's saying, I'm in need. I am vulnerable. I am all of these things. And you have a covenant with God to help me and you have the power and responsibility to do it as my guardian redeemer. Like I am the most in need and you are the most obligated to do this, to take care of me in this scenario. And so what does he say to her? He says, the best, this is the best case scenario easily with the riskiness of the situation. The Lord bless you, my daughter. Yes. He replied, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. He's like, I'm flattered that you would come to me. Um, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true, I am a guardian redeemer of our family, though. There is another who is more closely related than I. So stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So lie here until morning. Super respectful, right? He's like, man, I would love to help you out. I'm Ruth, you're awesome. I'm, I'm totally down. However, somebody else is first in line. There's someone else that has this obligation to do the right thing and take care of you, and I want to let him have a chance to fulfill that responsibility. And if he doesn't, then I will be more than happy to do it. So she lay at his feet until morning. This is verse 14. But got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. She could be potentially put to death if people thought there was some not so great things going down on the threshing floor. So this was for her protection. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When he did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, uh, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley too, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for this man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And boy, is that true, because meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as a guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, sit down. And so he went over and sat down and Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, he said. And Boaz said, okay, that's cool. On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also will acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And at this, the guardian redeemer is like, oh, then I cannot redeem it. I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Dude suddenly gets cold feet when Ruth gets brought up. Okay, he's like, oh, not interested. No more, okay? There are a couple reasons that this could be. 
One of which could be that maybe he just didn't have a ton of money, and so he was like, I don't think I can care for another family. That would be the really nice way of looking at this. Um, what's also very likely, though, is that she's a Moabite. That would endanger his estate. That could endanger his name. That could endanger the things that he has going on. And so he's like, man, I've got a good life for me right now. I've got a good thing going on. And if I bring Ruth, this Moabite in, that could cause some problems. And I don't think I'm willing to endure those problems. So I'm sorry, you're on your own. I cannot do it. And so he passes it over to Boaz, verse seven. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. Disgusting. Uh, this was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Like, why don't you shake hands, dude? Um, so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal and then he dipped out. Then Boaz announced to all the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the deed with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring of the Lord that the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And so Boaz, that was a very nice blessing of them. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. Seven sons couldn't do what she's doing, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And we know, some of us know, that through the line of David then comes Jesus. Then they give this big, long genealogy at the end, and we don't need to read that for today's point. But other than that, that's the story. We just read the whole book of Ruth. We just read the whole entire, they said it couldn't be done. You can't read a whole book on a Sunday morning. We did it. We read the entire book of Ruth. <laughs> Why? <laughs> what is the point? Like, we just spent all this time reading Ruth. You might be wondering, what is the point of reading this whole entire book? We are in a series that is looking at conflict in relationships. And so far, each of the stories that we have touched on are relationship issues, like conflict between two people that are having issues. But today's story is quite unique because when you look at the individuals, you will notice there is not really any conflict. They don't have any, everything goes pretty okay. Like everything is, is great in this story. And this is because it makes a great note for us to learn and to, to remember, conflict is not always internal. Conflict is not always between me and you, between person A and person B. Sometimes there are outside circumstances that have the ability to affect our relationships. They don't have to, but they have the ability to. There are these things that are awry, right? Like this phrase that we've been using repeatedly in this series is that conflict is inevitable, but resolution is not. And that's not just referring to our personal conflicts with others, but referring to the reality that life happens. We all know that life happens. Things go awry. Plans get ruined. Infertility occurs. People die. You name it. Things go wrong. And there are all of these extenuating circumstances outside of ourselves that now have the ability to get between me and the people that I'm close to. 
It can mess things up. It can cause problems, and we can choose to allow them to affect our relationships, or we cannot. And so we are going to use this story today as a guide on how to navigate external circumstances with our relationships, right? We've talked about how to do the internal stuff, but what happens when things are just so wildly chaotic outside of ourselves? When there's a death in the family, when suddenly we have to take care of a a loved one, how do we keep going? How do we keep doing relationships, not just marriages, not just dating relationships, but our friendships, our community, our people? How do we keep going? Well, let's start with the problem. What's the problem in this story? What's the conflict? Naomi and Ruth are, giving, are grieving and in need. Like that's the, it's so obvious. They are grieving and in need. Naomi's lost her husband and both sons. Ruth lost her husband and her father-in-law. Like they are not in a good scenario. They kind of like brush past it in the first paragraph. They're like, hey, here are six characters. Now three of them are dead. Like, whoa, like he's kind of like a brush past, but like that's a real thing. Like, let's acknowledge, like, all of us, a lot of us have experienced grief and loss in some capacity, and we need to acknowledge that that's a big deal. But not only that, not only have they exper- are they experiencing heavy grief and loss and this weight, but they're left without anybody to take care of them in this society. They're vulnerable now and in need. And so there are two types of people in this story in relation to this conflict. Two types of people, those in need and those who see a need. For the person in need, let's look back at the end of chapter 1 for a moment. Verse 19, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. There are name changes all throughout the Bible, all over the place. Most of the time, when the name changes, it's changed. It's done. They never go back to the old name. Okay, you've got Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Simon to Peter. We don't ever call these people by the OG name that they had. We all call it by the new one that they're given because the name has been changed. But you know what's interesting? You might have noticed this as we read, she was never called Mara. Never once. Literally in the next verse, it's like, (laughs) don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And then it's like, so Naomi went to town and you're like, oh, (laughs) Like, they don't even ever reference it again. The name is never spoken. She claims this name, Mara, as an expression of her grief and frustration and pain. She says, I went away full but came back empty, but nobody ever lets her go by that name. And I think that should teach us the lesson that your pain is not your identity. Your pain is not your identity. Grief or any external circumstances that cause anxiety, frustration, pain, all of those things can quickly become all-consuming and affect everything that you do. Like, you cannot take off this burden. Even when you're not thinking about it, it's like this low-grade anxiety that's just always there. I'm always carrying this burden. It's easy to let it define us, to define all that we do and all that we are, but it does not have to. Naomi's here thinking, oh, my life sucks, and God hates me, and nothing's the way it's supposed to be, and it must be me. It's my fault. If I wouldn't have gone to Moab, maybe none of this would have happened. I've lost my family. I've endangered these innocent women who now have no husbands to take care of them. I'm bitter, and I feel guilt for my rebellion. I went away full but came back empty, so just call me Mara. But bitter and rebellious is not her name. Her name is Naomi. 
which means good, pleasant, lovely. God looks at her, her community, the people around her look at her and they say, your pain, your experience, that is not your name. Your unfortunate circumstances, your misery, you are not misery. Your situation may be pretty awful, but it is not you. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. I think we've all been in that position before. And if we haven't been, we probably will be at some point of the sitting here being like, my life is not what I wanted it to be. It's my fault. God hates me. If, if I would have done this differently, then maybe things would be better. Or these things are not what I want. Things are not going well. But friends, you are not defined by the circumstance. You are not defined by your loss. You are not defined by your pain. You are not. You were defined by Jesus. So often we view our pain as something that holds us back. I can't do this because of my history. I can't follow Jesus because of my story. But that couldn't be further from the truth. That is not your name. The second thing we see the, those in need do in this story is simple, yet we struggle with it. They ask for help. They ask for help. Ruth and Naomi are in need and they need someone to take care of them. So what do they do? They don't just sit there and mope. They say, they go ask Boaz. Sure, Ruth does it in a very strange way in our, in our eyes. But the point is, is that they ask for help. If you are in need, ask for help. Ask for help. We live in a culture where asking for help is like a huge no-no. It's like totally taboo. We value our independence, not needing anybody, being able to go it alone. Like we are individuals in this individualistic society where I need to do things by myself and for myself. And if I can't do that, that shows that I am weak and it hurts my pride. Psychologist and author Kendra Sherry, she observed individualist cultures. And you know what she said? People from such cultures tend to experience greater stress, have less social support, and have less pro-social behavior. People from these cultures are not only less likely to help others, they are also less likely to ask for help when they need it. There is nothing wrong with help, though. There is nothing wrong with help. That is what our culture tells us. That is what the individualistic culture that we live in tells us. But church, this culture in this room has to be different. It is not bad to ask for help. There is no shame in asking for help. That's what a community is for. How can there be shame? How can there be anything wrong with your needs getting met? To come alongside each other and meet one another's needs, that is a beautiful thing that God has given us in community. We should be embracing that. If you need help, ask for it. Because help is a good thing, but you can't expect to receive it if you're not willing to ask for it. And I know there's shame there, and I know that our culture tells us that that's not a good thing, but you have to unlearn that. We have to unlearn that for our own sakes. We have to unlearn that. The other person in the story is the person who sees a need. Let's look at Boaz and Ruth. Ruth sees Naomi in need, and what does she say? I'm not going anywhere. Boaz, he sees Ruth coming to him for help, and he says, surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. I will take care of you. What does this teach us? When you see a need, tend to it. 
When you see a need, tend to it. There's tons of precedent for this throughout the scriptures, just to read a couple. Paul in Galatians 6 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. James in James 2, 15 and 16, he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, keep well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Paul, again in Romans 12, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Isaiah in Isaiah 1, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Moses in Deuteronomy 15, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. I hope the point is abundantly clear. To follow God, to follow Jesus, is to care for those in need. That is such a huge call. To care for those in need. When you see a need, tend to it. Just like Moses said in that last verse, I love that. There will always be someone in need. So when you see it, tend to it. When Ruth asks Boaz for help, what does she do? She reminds him of his covenant. She says, you're supposed to take care of me. I'm a foreigner, an orphan, a widow, I'm poor. And he looks at her and says, you know what? You're right. I follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. And as someone who follows him, I I will tend to all your needs. You're right. Thank you for reminding me of that. Church, we should be saying that all the time. We should be saying, as a follower of Jesus, yes, I will tend to all of your needs. I will remember my confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. I will remember my covenant with him through his body and his blood, just as Christ gave to me, so I will also give to you. When you see a need, tend to it. We should be saying that constantly when we see people in need. We should be reminded of our covenant with the Lord and say, I will tend to your needs. Now, I want us to notice something. We have both types of people in this room. Some of us in this room are in need. Some of us see a need and can help. And some of us maybe even be like Ruth. We're both, we're in need, but we're also making every effort to care for someone else. Honestly, the reality is that all of us at one time or another, depending on the season, will be in one of these spots. That's just the way life will go. So what do we as the church do? What do we do with this? As this mixed bag of everyone in a different place in life and everyone with their unique circumstances, people in need, people that that see the needs and tend to them, what do we do with this mixed bag? As your community pastor, I am very passionate about community. I'm very, I could do a whole sermon on this stuff. I'm like, I'm all set to get fired up, but we're not going to do that for the sake of time. So I will just dwell on a couple of things that are very important for us. Maybe just one. We are one unified body. We may have different circumstances. We may have to be in different places, but we are one unified body. Imagine if the characters in this story were committed to individualism like our society today, and they chose to isolate themselves. They chose to be divisive. They chose to say, no, I can go it alone. Ruth, she could have been like Orpah and been like, all right, Naomi, cool. You're right. It's better for me over here. Peace. I'm done. Like, that's, this is better for me. And so I'm going to do this. Boaz, he could have been like the other kinsmen and been like, eh, too risky. I like what I have going for me right now, and I don't want to risk messing that up to help you. How many of us does that hit? 
I don't want to mess up what I have. I can't risk it. You'll have to find somebody else. But Boaz and Ruth, they didn't do that. No, they chose to stick close to one another, to stay together. And so I want to challenge us as a community of God, a community that follows Jesus together, a community that falls under the authority of the words, love your neighbor as yourself, stick together. We are one unified body in loss, in grief, and heartache, in need, and in struggle. Whether these things be emotional, physical, mental, spiritual, whatever the needs are, we must stay together. Do not abandon one another. Do not isolate yourself. Do not leave just because things are difficult. I'm reading this book about community right now. It's, it's by this guy named Joseph Hellerman, who teaches New Testament at, uh, at Talbot Seminary. And he teaches this in in his book. It's one of the first things he says. He says, those who leave do not grow. Those who stay grow. Those who stick together grow. Those who see bad circumstances and say, I will push through. I will be with my people. I will stick together. I will meet whatever needs need to be met. And I will invite them to meet my needs. Don't be afraid to ask for help and don't be afraid to give it. And I know that can be hard in a context like this in this room where it can be difficult to get to know each other, you know, because we're all just sitting here, we say hi and then we say bye. But this is why we at Northwest, we have communities. Like this is the whole reason that we started doing this is to to have a space where we could have close, intentional, interpersonal relationships where we can be together, we can follow Jesus together, we can say, wow, this is what I'm going through, can you help me? Oh, this is what you're going through. I would love to help you. I'd love to come alongside you. Let's be community for each other. Let's stick together. Let's follow Jesus together. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to come into our lives. This is where discipleship lives and breathes. It lives within relationships. You cannot follow Jesus alone. So stick together. We have to stick together. We need each other. When my mother-in-law passed away, and even when she was in her greatest need of care in those final months, and we were there day and night caring for her, we all as a family formed a bond with each other that I cannot even begin to describe. We took care of one another. When we came around each other and we met one another's needs and we comforted each other, something crazy happened. These people that I've only known for like four years, They're like blood to me. I would do anything for my family. And I've only known them for four years. I haven't even known them for five. (laughs) But because when you stick together, when things are difficult, something happens and bonds take place. And suddenly there's this capacity that's just like, it just opens up. And this life with God, this eternal life can be experienced, a life to the full. That's what happens in community. Maddie and I, we had friends in this room, people in this church that came around us and supported everything that we need. How beautiful is it that the people of God can do that? The church can do that. You can do that. You can have your needs met here. You can meet other people's needs here. But it's just that, it starts with you. It starts with you. You have to make the choice. You have to jump in. It can't be like a one-way. This is a two-way street. 
In order for this to work, we all have to be in. We all have to be on the same page. We are going for this. We will, we will meet each other's needs. We will stick together. That's what we're gonna do because we are the church of Jesus. We are the body of Christ and we will stay together. A body cannot be without different parts. Parts cannot be taken apart. No, they have to stay together. It starts with you. And that's why I'm not gonna say like, hey, if you join a community, all your problems will get solved. No, because guess what? It still starts with you. If you join a community, you still have to open yourself up to it. You still have to say, hey, I wanna meet your needs. You still have to say, hey, I need, I need help. It starts with you. If you are the person in need, ask for help. If you see a need, tend to it. And above all, stick together in community. That's the lesson here. That's how we stay together. That's how we grow. That's how our relationships thrive in the family of God. We meet needs, we ask for help, and we stick together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for community. Thank you for a family that can come alongside one another where we can just be with each other. We can, we can meet one another's needs. We can take care of each other. There is no thing that we can't get through because we have each other and we have you. What a gift that is to have confidence in no matter the circumstance that we will get through because that's just what you do, God. You bring us through. Lord, would you unify us today? Unify our body. Lord, I pray that those on the fence about joining in a community would just take the leap. It is not good to be living alone. It is not good to do life alone. We must be doing it together. We have to do it together. So Lord, would you just give us the confidence, the courage to take that step, to go forward and say, yeah, I need people in my life and I'm just gonna go all in. I need people. And Lord, as we see communities thrive in this church, would we see lives transform? Would we see the kingdom of God here and now in this church and in Indianapolis? That is our prayer, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. Change us, change our hearts, change our church, change our city. We need you. We are desperate for you. And so we give ourselves to you today, Jesus. Amen.